All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Great. Hey, so I think because we're a little pressed for time this morning, I'm going to save some introduction of my wife and family for probably tomorrow or something. But I do want to introduce you uh, four special guests that are with me. Uh, and I'm going to just ask them to just stand up so you can at least see them. But my parents are, and my uncle and aunt are joining me. And so if they could stand, they're in their 70s and 80s. There they are. And uh, so this is a very, very special for me just to be able to have them join me uh, for this. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. And even as Brother Steve was preaching and teaching, I'm just praying for wisdom from the Holy Spirit, how we can navigate the next four or five days, along with the teaching, the worship. But I want to just remind you of one thing. I, again, I don't know where you come from, but for my wife and I, this is only the fourth occasion in the last 16 months that we have actually been worshiping together with other believers in person. Um, so for us, you don't realize how excited how grateful we are, and part of it is living in Seattle, very, very conservative around lockdown and restrictions, and I get it, we're trying to be about uh, being a good neighbor, the common good, but you don't understand what a joy it is to hear other people sing beyond computer speakers, okay? So I hope that you and I, we don't take this for granted. This is a gift, and I've had the privilege of traveling to different places around the world and meeting with sisters and brothers in Christ who can count on their hands the number of believers that they see throughout the entire year. And there is something about spiritual privilege that we have in the West where we don't quite understand what an, an amazing gift that we have. So when we sing, let's sing loud. Uh, when we're listening to these sermons, I ask humbly, stay engaged, even though we've got these back-to-back -back sermons in a row, lots of content, stay engaged. And certainly, when you're out and about in God's marvelous creation, please be sure to look out and to look up. Father, thank you so much again for the opportunity, for this gift, this joy, this privilege that we have to gather with sisters and brothers in Christ, some that we might know and others that we might not personally know, but as sisters and brothers, no matter where we might be in their spiritual journey with you, we ask now, we beseech the presence and power of your Holy Spirit to meet us here. God, our desire and our prayer is to have an encounter with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, if you have your Bibles with you, open it. If you have your uh, phones or apps with you, you can go ahead and engage it as well. And I'm going to read this. It's fairly long, and I'm going to stop at a couple moments to give you a couple um, exegetical comments because we're not going to be able to get through all of it in the next 35 minutes. Hear now God's Word. Afterward... 
Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Pause for a moment. That's seven disciples that see the risen Jesus again. We learn later this is the third time in which Jesus appears post his crucifixion and resurrection to Jesus. Let's continue. Verse 3, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Now, pause for a moment. We'll come back to this. But this is the absolute worst question to ask any fisherman if they've caught nothing. And Jesus knew they caught nothing. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Just a break for a second. It's quite amazing how John is so specific about the number of fish caught, 153. It's not coincidence. It's beautiful and powerful because during the time of Jesus, there were 153 known species of fish. So as to say that God's desire is for all to come to know him. The entire nations back to scripture here. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Friends, if I had to give a title for this message, if you're into titles, I would simply say, come and have breakfast amid chaos, challenge, and conflict. I suppose that for all of us, wherever we might be in our spiritual journeys, there are certain stories, certain passages, certain Bible verses that continue to speak to us. There are go-to passages and stories. 
Now, I will confess to you, John 21 is one of my handful of stories that no matter what season of life I go through, I come back to it, I read it, I meditate it on a regular basis. And I can't tell you the number of times I have read John 21 over the past six months. Now, there's two reasons why this story really speaks to me. Number one is that it is a fishing story. And I love all things outdoors, hiking, and I especially love fishing. Show of hands. How many of you here enjoy fishing? Raise your hands if you enjoy fishing. Not bad. How many of you here enjoy eating fish? Raise your hand. A lot of lazy people here. Now... Uh, I love fishing, so like all true fishermen, I brought a recent photo of a fish that I caught just a couple weeks ago. Let's show it right now. I think it's about to come up. There it is. It's my nice largemouth bass. Now, you might be asking, what's the connection between this photo and the sermon? There is no connection. <laughs> you just show off photos. Now, Photo aside, you can take it down. Aside from that, the second reason why I love this story is that underneath the story, underneath what we think is either a fishing story, the disciples are bored story, it's a fuzzy breakfast story, underneath, this is actually an incredibly raw, vulnerable, it's a story about doubt and confusion and ultimately about grace. It's a story about chaos and conflict and challenge and how Jesus meets the disciples, including Peter, amid all of these things and speaks grace and truth. Now, I don't have to tell you what an incredibly crazy time the past 16 plus months have been. But let me just give you a litany from my perspective, some of what's transpired in our nation and world. We have been in a global pandemic, an unprecedented global pandemic, certainly in the past 100 years. We have seen illnesses and we have seen deaths. Over 600,000 of our neighbors have passed away. And globally, we're speaking about millions. There have been economic impact and joblessness and businesses lost. I suspect that in a room like this, we have personal stories. We have been in the most contentious modern election season in our U.S. history. And I'm not trying to get into politics, but just to name and acknowledge some of the national intensity, anxiety, fear, and trauma. We saw what transpired on the Capitol Hill on January 6th. I work about three blocks away from the Capitol Hill building. We've seen social unrest and protests, many of them peaceful, but some that have been incredibly violent, including in the city that I call home in Seattle for the time being. We have seen examples of police brutality. We've seen our black and brown sisters and brothers experience pain and trauma that many of us cannot understand. We have experienced the vilification of law enforcement in ways 
that are just mind-boggling. We've seen the surge of anti-Asian hate. I can't tell you the number of times in the past 16 months I have been told to go back home. We've seen strained relationships with families and churches and, and, and the likes go on. And guys, thanks for coming. We'll see you guys tomorrow. I don't know about you, but just reading that list, I just get all anxious already. And I'm not even speaking of personal things that every single one of us have experienced in the past 16 months in addition to this communal experience. Just to give you an example, in our family, uh, we had an uncle who passed away because of COVID. We have a child who has underlying health conditions and the past 16 months has been very challenging. Uh, my father was hit by an 18-year-old drunk driver at 9 o'clock in the morning, about four months into this whole pandemic. I, I can go on and on. We just don't have time. And so in the midst of all that I just conveyed, this, this theme of doubt and confusion and anxiety and fear and chaos and does Jesus have a word for us. I can't tell you the number of times the past 16 months I have said, Lord, where are you? In our passage, Peter says something incredibly interesting, and then I'll explain to you why it matters. Peter, along with the other six disciples, seven of them together, out of nowhere, Peter says these three words, I'm going fishing. Now, again, I want you to understand that as pastors and theologians have studied this passage, they believe, as I do, that there's actually a deeper meaning and a message behind I'm going fishing. In other words, Peter's not just bored. He's not just trying to have a, a bro activity with the other disciples. That when he says, I'm going fishing, what's really going on, what he's really trying to say is, I'm done. Just to remind you, the profession that Peter had prior to being called into discipleship by Jesus was he was a professional fisherman. He wasn't a wealthy millionaire by any means, but he had his own small business. He had his own tools, and he made a living out of these things. And at this moment, when he says, I'm going fishing, he's saying, I'm done. I want to go back to what I was doing before I met Jesus. Other translations, he may have been saying, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm weary, I'm heavy burdened, too much chaos and challenge and crazy. How many times have we said, this is too complicated? too messy. How many times have we entered into something in our life and we find ourselves either in our minds or in uh, uttering with our lips, this is not what I signed up for. Now, this is not a new story. Even in the Old Testament, we're introduced to how the Israelites, they were freed from the bondage and the oppression of Pharaoh. 
And you would think that as they're on their way to the promised land, towards freedom, towards destiny, you would assume they would be absolutely joyful. And yet scripture tells us that there was a group of people who yearned to do what? To go back. I want to go back to Egypt. It's for that reason why this story, I think, is particularly important as we're speaking of spiritual formation amid all of this chaos, conflict, and challenge. So as we acknowledge this, there are, I want to share with you, time permitted, five things from our passage here, five things that I think we can glean from the disciples and how Jesus engages Here's five things, and let's start off with number one. Three words, and I truly believe these three words are the most important words of formation for each and every single one of us. No matter what you're going through, no matter what conflict, crazy, challenge, chaos, no matter what you're going through personally, as a community in our larger world, these three words I would urge you as a fellow brother in Christ, keep coming back to these three words. I'm pausing for dramatic effect. Three words, here it is. Jesus is alive. When I read the story, I can get so into the details about the fishing, the breakfast, the interactions, the theological questions that I may have. Why is Peter naked in the boat? What's going on? All of these things that as I'm going through and studying this passage, I, when I first read this, I've forgotten to state the obvious, and the obvious is what? This Jesus Christ a real historical person who was unjustly tried, who was unjustly persecuted and crucified, who was placed in a tomb. This Jesus Christ crucified, this Jesus is now alive. In other words, what I'm saying is, Jesus is not just a mere historical figure. He's not just a good revolutionary political icon. He's not just a good moral person. He's not just some sort of a pop psychology guru. Jesus is who he says he is, and he will accomplish what he says he will accomplish. In other words, Jesus is God and he is alive. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not trying to be abrasive here. But every now and then, we need some Pentecostals in our midst. <laughs> Jesus is alive. That's great news. It's the third time in which he appears himself to his disciples. Twelve instances in scripture recorded in which the risen Christ appears to a multitude of people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 14. I love what it says. It simply reads, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is our faith. It means that if Christ has not risen, there is actually no meaning to everything that's going on. 
And I'm not suggesting that the risen Christ, it somehow appeases everything. There's still pain, there's still chaos, there's still conflict and challenge. But when you understand that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of all things, that he is our King, Lord, and Savior, we begin to have a different perspective of all that goes on, not only in our lives, but also around the world. These three words are the most important words of formation that we have to keep reminding ourselves again and again and again and again. Here's the second thing that we can learn from this passage here, and it's this. The human obsession with clarity. Now, what do I mean by the human obsession with clarity? A better way to translate this is these disciples, like you and I, I don't care what our personality types, what our enneagrams are, the reality is every single human being wants to be in control. Now, you might be asking, what happened, what transpired with Peter and the disciples that they're suddenly wanting to quit, give up, full of doubt and confusion, and wanting to go back to what they were doing? And it's this. They realized that they were not fully in control and not quite sure how to navigate what Christ had called them to navigate. Let me ask you this particular question. Have you ever had an experience in your life where you know God spoke a vision, a word, a commandment, and an invitation to you in your life? And the fact that you had a spiritual encounter, you're so incredibly spiritually high, but after a few days, after a few weeks, you find yourself thinking to yourself, how do I do this? This doesn't make sense. You see, I can imagine the disciples having multiple encounters, obviously, with Jesus. Jesus gives them an invitation to go and baptize all men, women, and children in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, the ends of the earth. Peter, you're going to be the cornerstone of the church. And I can just imagine that scene, that moment when the disciples are having their spiritual mountaintop, Mount Hermon High where they're jumping up and down. They're basically shoulder to shoulder doing their pre-game ritual. And then the risen Christ disappears. He disappears, and then I feel like after a moment or after a couple of days, the disciples are going, okay, how do we do this? How do we handle this? And it's that inability to know the future, the inability to know the specifics. As a leader, the past 16 months have been so difficult because there is no book how to navigate what we've gone through the past 16 months. There's no parenting manual. There's no, there's no uh, a business manual. And the list goes on. And more so than ever before, the past 16 months was so much, I found myself going, this is not what I signed up for. And I want you to realize the Bible, the scriptures, the word of God, it never promises you absolute clarity for your life. 
If your Bible promises you absolute clarity, please, let's switch Bibles. I don't care what your translation is, but the Bible does not promise clarity, the specifics of your future. The good news, the gospel isn't clarity. The good news, the gospel is salvation by grace and that Jesus is with us. I became a believer at the age of 18. And at the age of 18, my constant prayer, several times a day, I would pray regularly, God, show me my future. Because I wanted to know my future. Every single day, God, would you show me what my major will be, what my job will be, who my future spouse will be, where I'll live in the future, and the list goes on. Every single day, God, would you please show me clarity about my future. I mean, I am so grateful as I look back now. I'm turning 51 in a couple months. And as I look back at 18-year-old Eugene, when I first became a believer and prayed that prayer, I am so grateful that God never answered my prayer request in the fashion in which I had prayed God would answer them. Does that make sense? Had God told 18-year-old Eugene that rather than becoming a doctor as my parents had basically uh, desired for me to be, that I would become a pastor and as a result, disappoint my parents. And this is incredibly important for me because my parents are children of poverty, of war. My father grew up in what is now called North Korea. They came here with pretty much nothing, with one simple goal was to provide education for their children. And I still remember as a little kid, my parents telling my two brothers and I exactly what we were supposed to become. My oldest brother was supposed to be an engineer. He's now an engineer, got an MBA, a postdoctorate, and I hate him. <laughs> My second brother was supposed to be a, a business person or a lawyer, and so he goes to UCLA and works on Wall Street, and he's doing his thing, and I was supposed to be a doctor, and so when I told them that I felt called to be a doctor, I still remember calling, him from, calling my parents from UC Davis, my third year in college, and just saying, you know, in Korean, 어머니, 아버지, 저 모델고 싶은 거 결정했습니다. I've decided what I want to become. And my mom says, doctor! <laughs> Literally in that voice. And I said, um, no. And eventually, with just trepidation, I say, 저 목사 되고 싶습니다. I want to be a pastor. For some of you young people, this is actually a phone. I just want, I, like, you're, you're, you're looking at me really strange. Like, what is he doing with this? This is a phone, old school phone. It had to be at least five minutes of just silence. And all I could hear was like Darth Vader's And then she choked me from afar. It was amazing. 
If God had told 18-year-old Eugene that my wife and I, we would be married, we'd have three amazing, incredible children, and one of them would have a lifelong chronic illness. And that we would spend not just days, not just weeks, not months, but years, including this past year, weeping, anxious, worried, going to expert after expert. Had God told 18-year-old Eugene that at the age of 31, as we were felt called to plant a church uh, in Seattle, that the church would just fall flat in that first year? It wasn't quite the Excel master plan that we had envisioned. And as a 31-year-old pastor, and I'm not saying this because this job was beneath me, it was just the last thing on my mind, and it's this. As a 31-year-old pastor, to eventually be on food stamps and to work as a janitor at a Barnes & Noble store in Linwood, Washington. Now, granted, it was the cleanest Barnes & Noble store. I mean, I can go on and on. Had God told me all of those things at the age of 18, I know exactly what I would do. I would run the other way. Do you know why God doesn't always reveal your future clarity? It's because Jesus loves you. And sometimes in our immaturity, we can't handle it. And we're reminded that faith is about clinging on to Jesus. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in one of his sermons, he simply articulates it in this way. Take the first step in faith. Take the next step in faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the next step. Scripture reminds us on so many occasions Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, that he promises that he will be with you always. Romans chapter 8, nothing separates us from the love of God. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The good news isn't clarity. The good news is Jesus. And no matter what we've gone through, no matter what you've gone through, the good news here today is that Jesus is still here. Here's the third thing that we can learn, and we're going to jump through the last three points as quickly as we can. Number three, we've got to learn to hear the voice of God. The disciples, yes, they, had, they were filled with doubts and anxiety. They wanted to quit. But if there's something that we can glean in terms of a positive here, it was the fact that eventually they began to realize that this faint, anonymous voice wasn't a troll, it was Jesus. And then they listened to Jesus. The reason why this is so important is because the disciples are experts in fishing. I want you to know that they fished the Sea of Galilee thousands of times in their lives. They know the best spots, the best methods, the best times, and yet they were unsuccessful. So ask for us to learn that apart from Jesus in the marathon of life, I truly believe we can do nothing apart from Jesus. We need to learn to hear the voice of God. Research tells us that 
things are moving so quickly right now, but one thing is clear, we live right now in the noisiest time in human history. The noisiest time in human history. Whether it's the 30,000 decisions that we make every single day, whether it's the thousand advertisement pitches that are made every single day, the average American over the age of two right now consumes five hours and 30 minutes of media every single day. Television, our screens, our Netflix, our smartphones, and the list goes on. And research can't keep up with how fast things are moving right now. That means in a 65-year lifespan, the average American is going to spend 5 million minutes consuming larger media. Now, I'm not trying to vilify and demonize all media. I'm just simply saying they have an agenda and a message that might be contrary to peace and love and goodness and self-control and the list goes on. And yet, if we're consuming all of these things and we're not being intentional about the things that Steve taught this morning, I can tell you right now, I believe chaos, conflict, and challenge will actually be the rhythms of our life rather than the fruits of the Spirit. If Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, fully God, fully human, perfect, chose to regularly, rhythmically retreat for silence, prayer, and time with God the Father, how much more do we need this in our lives? Here's four. Our emotions matter, but we don't worship our emotions. Now, what do I mean by this? Peter wore his emotions on his sleeves. We know that Peter, he was very vocal. You could say that he was somewhat impulsive from the three examples that Steve shared this morning. And friends, listen, I'm not trying to knock your emotions. I'm not trying to denigrate feelings. Feelings and emotions matter. They have a place. God created us with feelings and emotions. But I am concerned for you and for me. For this generation, for the next generation, for the previous generations, I'm concerned that not only are we listening to our emotions, but emotions and feelings have become the juggernaut soul mover of how we live our lives. Over the past 20 years as a pastor, increasingly so in the last 5, 10 years, I have been somewhat taken back at the ways that congregants have responded by saying, I don't feel like it. Now, again, I'm human, so I understand. But in terms of what seals a decision, I don't feel like it. I don't feel God. I don't feel like working. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like giving. I don't feel like serving. I don't feel like staying in this marriage. I don't feel blank. Put in whatever your thoughts are. And this is what I mean, that feelings have a place because God created us with such things but even feelings submit themselves to the authority of God. One of the most 
provocative books. And you're probably going to hear a few book references from Steve and myself throughout this week. And I would encourage you, write these down. But Mother Teresa's unauthorized autobiography. When she passed away, they found out basically her diary. I had a moral conundrum. Should I be okay reading her autobiography when she hasn't given permission? So I bought it anyways, and I read through it, and I really, really hated it which is not what I expected. I love most of it, but there are parts of it where Mother Teresa, if there's someone that I think has a close communion, a close connection with Jesus, in my mind, it's Mother Teresa. And yet in her autobiography, she writes in her journal that there were not just nights or days, but weeks or months at a time where she did not feel. And I honestly wish I could have ripped out those pages from her autobiography. And yet she says that ultimately I know that Jesus is alive. There's room for you to bring our feelings to God, but this is why we have to keep reminding ourselves that Jesus is Lord. Last one, and we'll close with this. Last one. Come and have breakfast. Now, what do we mean by come and have breakfast? Can you imagine how the story would have somehow turned out if Jesus responded in a myriad of different ways? What if Jesus said to the disciples as they were coming in, knowing what Jesus knows, that they were about to quit, give up, and go back to their old ways? Can you imagine if Jesus gave them the silent treatment? The shaking of the head is deadly. Can you imagine if Jesus as the disciples were coming in, gave them the one-word response. Really? Seriously? Again? Dude, what if it got even more serious? What if Jesus responded with words that maybe you and I have heard or said in our impulsiveness? What if Jesus said, Peter, you're a failure. You're unreliable. That vision that I gave you to be the cornerstone, no longer. I can't use you. What if Jesus said, I'm done with you? And here's the thing, I think in humanness, Jesus could have said any of those things and have been justified. But what Jesus does is pretty powerful as we're about to go eat soon. Jesus, I imagine, simply does this. He points to the food and then he says, come and have breakfast. Now, you want to hear a story of grace, of embodied life? It's this. And throughout this week, 
we're going to learn about what an embodied life, about what it means to respond to this invitation, come and have breakfast. I pray that no matter what you've experienced, what you've gone through individually, as a family, in your marriage, in your singlehood, in your church, in our neighborhood, in our nation, and around the world, hear these words, come and have breakfast. So Father, thank you again so much that you have room and space for our feelings and emotions, but as we come to you, may your truth reign supreme. Thank you for these words of invitation. Come and have breakfast. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.